Welcome to Momentum Church. We have been looking at the subject of, if I am being honest, things at times that we hide behind or things at times that we experience that we don't want people to think we experience. And today I want to cover another one. And what this one today is, if I am being honest, I often have doubts. If I'm being honest, I have doubts. How many in this room at times you have doubts? Anybody in this room? Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, when it comes to having doubts, and I'm your pastor, but there's been times in my life I have had doubts in regards to my prayers. Are my prayers being answered? God, I feel like the ceiling, ever feel like the ceiling's brass? Like you're praying, but you just don't feel like you're hearing or seeing anything? And God, are my prayers being answered? There, there are times that I have doubted God's plan for my life, got, doubted God's next step, doubted God's provision. Like, why, what in the world, God, can you provide? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not in good company, but maybe I'm in a room of people that at times have, have doubts because there have been times in my life, even as a minister, where I have doubts. Can, can I say this one when it comes to doubts? Sometimes there are things in the Bible that are hard to believe. Am I alone in that? Like you read it and you're like, really? R- really? Did, did this? I see people nodding and smiling. You've been there before. Every one of us, I think every single one of us at times can read the word and say, God, really? Is that, did that happen? Or is that really what it's meaning? Yeah, I think all of us at times have doubts and that might resonate with you. And I just want to let you know, you are in good company. Not because I have doubts, all right? I'm not saying I'm good company. You're in good company because the scripture is full of people that at times struggle with doubts. How many has been around things of faith, Christianity, church, and it almost feels like you're not allowed to have or have any doubts? Yeah. It's kind of like, well, just believe. I get that. But like King Agrippa, help my unbelief. I, I believe, but help my unbelief. I mean, I'm still struggling here, you know? And every one of us has been through that, and we're in good company because you see it all throughout Scripture. And I want you to look at this idea of John the Baptist. How many think that John the Baptist would never have a doubt one? I mean, this is the man, this is Jesus' cousin. He's heard the story from the time he was a little boy that when he was in his mama Elizabeth's belly, and, and, and Mary came into Elizabeth's presence, how John the Baptist leapt in her womb. I mean, that's the, 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 the um, um, in vitro savior inside Mary doing a work on the in vitro future baptizer, John, in Elizabeth, and this baby's flipping. I mean, they, I'm sure... All throughout their young lives, at times, it's like, man, I've heard that story. If, if, if Aunt Elizabeth tells me that story one more time. <laughs> then, when it was the day that Jesus was going to be baptized, Jesus comes, John looks at him and says, behold, the lamb slain that takes away the sins of the earth, the whole world. And he points to Jesus. You know, then he baptizes Jesus, Right? And remember, when he comes up out of the water, the whole dove thing, the voice, the scripture makes it sound like the voice was from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If I'm John, I'm freaking out a bit. If I'm John, I'm seeing something, I'm hearing something. 
If I'm John in that moment, yeah, I'm never going to have to struggle with doubt again because I literally saw the Messiah, baptized the Messiah, heard the voice of the Father speak over the Messiah. I will never struggle again. Let's stand to our feet, though. I wanted to show you something in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Because John the Baptist had people that were followers of him. They were followers in the teaching of repentance. John was challenging the Jewish people to live repentant lives. And he would baptize them in this baptism of repentance. And so he had followers. And so he says here, he sent word to his disciples. He said to him, this is what they were supposed to ask of Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What in the world? Have you ever seen that before? Like, what in the, John, you're having doubt? You've experienced this since you were a kid? You saw him, you declared who he was. You heard and saw with your own ears and eyes, and now you're going, are you the one? I don't know. Are we, should we be looking for another Messiah? How many has ever seen that in there before? I knew you hadn't. Isn't it crazy? And here's what Jesus answered. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so he tells John, go and tell them what you see and here, one translation, or not translation, there's just in two places in the gospel. One of the places in the gospel, it makes it look as if in that moment, they're watching Jesus do ministry. And he's telling them, go tell them what you just saw. That's kind of the picture of it. And in this gospel, it reconciles it to where he's just saying, go tell them what you see and hear. And so this one to me feels a little more passive than the other. The other feels more like, you just saw this, go tell them, you know. But either way, the message is the same. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Go tell that. Go ahead and have your seats. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask, Lord God, that you would just help us. Not be afraid of doubt. That you would help us, Lord God, know how to take our doubts and our struggles with belief and how to manage those to, to walk down a path, Lord, towards certainty. And we just ask for that. Give us wisdom in our conversation today. In Jesus' name, amen. And so doubt is part of human nature. I mean, it's always been a part of human nature. And that's the reason why Satan played that card with Adam and Eve. He was playing to their nature to bring doubt. When, do you, when did he do that? And I don't have this scripture on the screen, but this is when Satan comes to Eve and says, did God actually say, that sounds like doubt, right? Did God actually really say that? Like, does the Bible really mean that? Like, like is that really the truth? Did, did two by two go on Noah's Ark? Whatever the thing is that you struggle at times to believe, did, did, did. Yeah, it's just part of our nature to have doubt. God's not afraid of doubt. Churches are. I'm not afraid of doubt. Because I believe doubt's a gateway to truth. Amen? We'll, we'll get to that. Doubt's a gateway to have your, your certainty bolstered. All right? 
But Satan played to it, and he's like, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did God actually say that? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree of that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. He's bringing doubt. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And I want you to check this out, y'all, because in our postmodern world of relativism when it comes to truth, when it comes to the idea of, of everything goes when it comes to matters of belief and faith, you can see the deception of the enemy right in this scripture. Watch this. But the serpent said, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. They'll be enlightened. They'll have deeper understanding. And you will be like God, and you will know, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. In other words, the level of discernment that you're going to have will be like God. And, and, and we see this all the time when it comes to relativism in our world, you know, where people become so heightened in their understanding that they say that evil is good and good is evil. It's all flipped. It's all backwards. And it can leave us as a believer saying, what is the truth? What is right? What is moral? This was an attack on morality, is what this was. And still to this day, the enemy loves to use doubts to bring attacks to truth. To use doubts to bring an attack to issues of what's good and what's evil. He's still doing it. It's always been the plan of Satan to take man's nature for doubt and then to use it against them to redefine good and evil. I don't want you to run from doubt. I want you to have a path for your doubt. Amen? We'll talk about that in a little bit. There's nothing wrong with having doubt and moving forward to resolve those doubts. Nothing wrong at all. But in the middle of that process, the enemy of your heart would love to sift and separate you from God's best for your life. As you're going down that process of doubt, what you're doing with it, the enemy, ooh, just like he tried to sift Adam and Eve. That idea of separation from God wasn't, it, I'm sorry, that idea of death, that the day you eat that, you'll surely die, it was being separated from God's best. The enemy still wants to separate. He still wants to sift. Say sift. It's always been his plan. And he uses our nature against us, so there's nothing wrong with doubt, but what are we doing with our doubts? Here, there was another person. You got John the Baptist having doubt. And now Jesus, he sees Simon, Simon Peter. And he begins to speak to Simon in Luke 22, 31 through 32. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan. Who? Yeah, the enemy's always had this plan. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Watch this. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so in other words, we can flip this scripture on its head that if the enemy is going to sift and Jesus is praying that your faith may not fail, then one of the ways the enemy sifts is to cause us to have failing faith. Does that make sense? The failing of faith. And I have taught you so many times, it's probably to, ad nauseum, that faith in the New Testament, the word means allegiance to, not just belief in. And he's saying here, I'm praying for your failing of your faith, that it won't fail. Because he knows that the enemy's trying to sift, to bring doubt 
into to Peter's life, into Peter's mind, and he wants to sift Peter. And Jesus is like, I'm praying that your allegiance will not fail. But Pastor Ross, it did. Didn't win, though. Not every, every single one of us, while we're fighting and dealing with doubt, some of us are going to get a little bit too far in our faith, in the things we had put allegiance to and believe. We're going to get to that line and, 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 and maybe almost step over the line a little bit. I'm not saying to do that, all right? Amen. Pastor said, go ahead and step over the line. No, I'm saying that at times, you have people in your home right now that are stepping over the line when it comes to matters of allegiance. You have people in, in your family that are stepping over the line. I'm not saying that they're gone forever. They're just stepping over the line, Amen. We pray for them that their faith may not fail. And Peter turned things around, amen? God turned things around in Peter's life. But this idea of failing of faith, the enemy wants to introduce doubt, and if we don't manage doubt well, our allegiance can, can, can start to shift. That allegiance to one thing, um, or to one, like allegiance to one, like to Jesus, or to a thing that is the object of your faith. That, that's what faith is. It's not just believing, but it's aligning your life to what you believe. And that's what's important. Don't miss this. This is going to come back around toward the end. I'm going to bring it together. This idea of aligning your life, that's belief. Aligning your life to what you believe. And the enemy would love to take this thing that's in us. I think that idea of doubt, I don't think that's from the devil. I think God gave us an inquisitiveness about us to want to know truth. Because if you want to know truth, you will find Jesus. If you want to know truth, you'll elevate his word. If you want to know truth, it'll draw you to a deeper relationship with God. And so there's this sense of inquisitiveness about us. The enemy just sees that and says, hey, I'm going to use that against them. And here's the thing about it. There, there's two things at play. Years ago, when people begin to struggle with their faith, and they would begin to put their foot over the line, or maybe, you know, like, like Jeff. No, I'm teasing Jeff. Maybe I just play it. I just was seeing who I could pick on. It's like, I'm both feet over here. I'm just jumping all the way out. What do we call that back in the day? They went, what? They backslided. They went backsliding, you know. They were like the, like the Michael Jackson of, of spiritual things. They were just moonwalking their way to hell. They were backsliding, right? Yeah, that's what we called it, backsliding. And the, the thing about backsliding, how many, I'm going to be honest, I want to know, you heathens, how many in this room you went through a season of backsliding? Raise your hand. Oh, I knew this was my church. I knew this was my church. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm not saying that's prescribed. Everybody that hasn't backslid is like, I ought to try that. <laughs> no, don't. Because <laughs> there's a lot more that's not in here right now that never got it slid right, right? So, <laughs> but many of us did that. And what that was is you believed at one time. You believed, but you chose not to align your life to those beliefs. It wasn't that you stopped believing. You knew he was still the same yesterday, today, and forever. You knew the power of the Holy Spirit was still at work. You knew the church was where you were to go to when you needed to find growth and development and, and, to, and help in time of need. You knew God's word. You just didn't care, right? It wasn't an attack on truth. It was an attack on lifestyle. Does that make sense? 
And, and, and with backsliding, that was something that many people just seemed like that they moved into. A lot of times that turn, that shift would happen when they would get married and have a kid and they would draw back to the things of God. They would realize the importance of their childhood faith and that would happen. Or they would go through a crisis or they would be in college and meet up with some others that were going after God and realize, what am I doing? I need to go after God too. And they would turn and begin to follow Jesus. But it wasn't about a deconstruction of truth. It was about a choice to live a different lifestyle. All right? So... Nowadays, the enemy loves to shift tactics. If this tactic isn't working, <laughs> you got to know I'm emotional about this subject. If this tactic isn't working to backslide, I'll allow them to experience the world like Solomon, and then they'll leave God. But there's a whole bunch of people in this room we went and did like Solomon, and we realized there was no other answer for our life but Jesus. And we came back. There was no other drug that gave you the high like Jesus. There was no other peace, thing that you could grab a hold of that gave you the peace like Jesus. Amen? And we came back. And the enemy's like, hmm, that ain't working now. I've got to shift some things. If I can get them to question not just their lifestyle in regards to what they want, but the foundation of what they put belief in to give allegiance to, if I can get them to question that, I will have them for life. I can teach them to eat from this tree where they will become like God themselves in their own minds, and they will be able to determine what is good and what is evil. Whew. I'm not saying backsliding's good. I'm just saying deconstruction, this is a lot worse. It's more insidious. And it's the enemy at work. And I'm, again, I'm not against doubt. I'm actually not against deconstruction in some ways. All right? The choice is, what are you constructing after you deconstruct? That's the main thing that's important. All right? And so what is deconstruction? How many heard that term, deconstructionism? Yeah, many people have it. I want to speak to this. This is something that is very prevalent in our world today. If you didn't know about it at all, when I speak about it, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's happening everywhere. What deconstruction is, it's a process whereby a Christian, usually an evangelical, gives up the set of traditional beliefs that he or she once held. Now, pastor, what is an evangelical? You are an evangelical. All right, what does that mean? It means that we have a high value of the word of God in our lives. We look at it as an authority over our lives. It means that we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. It means that we are evangelistic, ergo evangelical. That means a good messenger. Like we want to send the message of the gospel. We try to reach people for Jesus because he's the way, truth, and life. Other people need to know him. And so there's a strong purpose in evangelism. And so that's an evangelical. And people are pulling away from evangelicalism and going toward other things. Now, here's the thing. I don't blame them in some ways. Because you know why? When I say the word evangelical, many of you in this room your mind will go to political parties. You're like, pastor hasn't meddled about this in a long time. I haven't. Get ready. <laughs> all right? And you guys know my take on politics. I hate them all. No, I'm teasing. But when it comes to the idea of the evangelical, the far right, 
has, has grabbed a hold of that to the point that literally people in the world can't separate the two. And so you're not about Jesus and a life-changing ministry that makes impact around the world, that brings hope and peace and stories of hope, etc. You're not about that if you're an evangelical. You are about a political party if you're an evangelical. All right? And, and I'm sorry, some of, you, some of you in here, that that's how you look at it too. Your hiney's just got tight. You'll have to get over it. Okay? I'm, I'm, you'll just have to get over it. But it's, it's true, all right? And we've done in some ways a disservice blending the church, making the church and a political structure one and the same, all right? Ooh, I just felt this. Many people in this room get frustrated. You'll be like, oh, the Catholic church, all the Catholic church was was just Rome. It was just Rome connecting with the church and taking it over and then using it for their own benefit. And next thing you know, it was a benefit to Rome. And then you get the Holy Roman Empire, which becomes this political structure based in, hmm. Don't be upset about that in 314 AD, starting to manifest with Constantine. Don't be upset about that if it doesn't disturb you a little that that's happening again. Amen? We got to be careful. Who are we allegiant to? Jesus. Amen? And y'all know, I'll just be honest. I mean, I don't know if I've ever even said this from the pulpit. I swing right. I do. I, there's a lot more conservative things in me than liberal by all means, 100%. And those platforms I stand by more than anything else. Yes, I swing very much over that sway. But I am not going to put my allegiance there. Not in men and party. My I want people when they see me to see Jesus. Yeah. Not red or blue. Amen? Yeah. Amen? Don't want to be an elephant or a donkey. <laughs> There's some jokes in my head. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> but here's the thing. <laughs> the deconstructees describe their former beliefs as not being able to stand up to argument or being unethical. Literally, what is good and what is evil. This is what's happening with deconstructees. Those who are deconstructionists, they, they're redefining good and evil. And it's up is down now, down is up. The moral code of tolerance has become something that is just tolerant of everything except for the believer. Amen? Except for God's word. And this has become the new morality. Some become progressive Christians when they de de deconstruct. They become progressive Christians, believing that anything goes or a lot of things that Orthodox Christianity does not espouse, they now embrace, all right? Some become agnostics or atheists, an agnostic being someone who believes that there could be a higher power, but doesn't make himself known that way, so how would you know? You can't do scientific research, so how would you know? So I'm not going to make a decision. I do believe there's something, a force, there's something, but I can't put a name to it. And then obviously an atheist, a theist, would mean that they don't believe in a God at all. And so that deconstruction, that can happen. So there's a difference between backsliding versus deconstruction. Like I said, backsliding is kind of want, you do what you want to do, you know. But when it comes to deconstruction, and, and if you have family members who are deconstructing, love them. Have dialogues, not arguments with them, Amen. Your argument ain't never going to change nobody. Man. It's just not. 
And so the deconstructionist is a person that doubts truth and principles that were once held and stops holding scripture and, 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 and such. Um, and the Christian faith is valid. All right, I'll say it again. My, my notes were half and half. It's a, 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 man, I'm stuttering bad today. A person doubts truth and principles that were once held and stops holding scripture and the Christian faith as valid. And as I said, it's an attack on truth, that idea of relativism, all right? And, and, and you know, now, when it comes to it, it's like if it's true for you, you do you, boo, right? Do you understand, though, if it's true and you do you and your truth is as valid as my truth, philosophically, this is a conundrum. I mean, don't use the word truth, all right? Use opinion. Your opinion is as good as my opinion. Everybody has one, right? People are smiling because you know the joke. I, why are you thinking that in church? But don't use the word truth because it's a conundrum. You can't, you can't say this truth is the truth and your truth is the truth. No, truth means there is one truth. It's not relative. Now, there's relative experiences based on opinions. And you can say my experience based on this opinion has resulted in this, but you can't say it's truth. All right? And so what has happened is this attack has led to so many deconstructing, not just people in the pew, but people in the pulpit, preachers who are deconstructing. Years ago, there was a man by the name of John Harris, or Joshua Harris. He wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Remember this book? It was not a great book. But he wrote the book. And people all over the world begin to live by the book. And, and it caused a lot of issues and stuff. And years later, a lot of people begin to attack him for the book. And I'm just trying to be a good pastor. He pastored this church, Covenant Life Church. And I'm just trying to be a pastor. And they're attacking me. And out of the ugliness, both from Christians and unbelievers, but a lot of Christians being ugly, he began to become jaded to people that were following Christ or saying they're Christ followers and began jaded to the church and began to deconstruct. And eventually he gave up his faith entirely. Now, the thing about that in deconstruction, some of these evangelicals, they're calling them, not themselves, but, but people that write about these people, they're calling them ex-evangelicals. Ex-evangelicals, all right? And Josh, Josh Harris has become an ex-evangelical. They not only have left the faith, like the backslider, man, the backslider's like, I'm out here, I ain't in church, I'm partying, I'm getting my thing on. But if his friend was like, you know what, I'm still going to go to church. I'm still going to love Jesus. I'm, oh, good, you do you, you know. I'm, that's awesome. Where's the next party, you know. But for the deconstructionist, there's a habit, there's a bent that once was in them to see lives changed. Why? Because God puts this bent in us to lead people to things, right? So there's this bent, this habit they can't shift. And so now it's not just enough that I'm going to do my thing. I am going to become an ex-evangelical. I'm going to begin to try to bring others towards deconstructing what they believe as well as they promote their new faith. Well, is it faith? Yeah, it's faith, because faith is a belief that you align to and give allegiance to. And so it's a new, it's a new faith. And so even for a while, guess what Harris was doing? Because, heck, if you're doing this, you might as well make some money on it. So for a while, he was offering a course for $275 to help others in their process of deconstruction. 
He got a lot of flack for that, so he ended up giving that up. The ex-evangelical propagates the good news of secularism and the, with enthusiasm of a, a religious zealot they go after trying to reach others with their new message. It's not enough that they've stopped believing, but they needed to be able to bolster their position by leading others into their same beliefs. And so we probably all know somebody that's deconstructing right now. Again, don't be afraid of them. They're not the enemy. Love on them. Lean into them. You know, talk with them. They're, they're, they want truth. The world is fighting them to say, this is what's good, this is what's evil, and it's so opposite what we see. They're in a tough way. I can't tell you how many hours of conversation I've had with close members of my family as they have deconstructed so many things. And so deconstructionism is fine in some ways. Doubt is fine. But what are you building once you've deconstructed? That's the thing. I'm seeing the fruit of lives that are deconstructed, and I'm not seeing the fruit of what God would have for people as they deconstruct. I'm not seeing the fruit. Well, what are you building if you deconstruct? I would say Scripture would tell us if we build anything on sand, it will fall. If we build it on the rock... On the truth, it will stand the storms of life. Amen? And here's the thing. I'm going to give you this, and then I'm going to break a couple things down here, and we're going to be finished. And this is one of those teachings today, I'm going to be honest. It, it's, this is just to prick your minds. Is that okay? And to prick your spirits. I don't, I told, I think it was Pastor Stephanie, I told her this morning, I said, I don't feel like I have this wrapped up in a nice bow, because you can't. This is messy. You've got to go be what the Bible will call you Bereans. Those, those people in Berea, in Scripture, that were students of the Word, like, go after study. And I'll explain how to do that here in a second. But it's not going to be tied up neat. I just want you to understand, we're living in a world where you're going to doubt. There's a lot of people taking the doubt and deconstructing. What are they doing with that deconstruction? What are you going to do with your doubts? Are you going to deconstruct? If you start to deconstruct, what are you going to construct? All right? How are you going to guard from allowing the enemy to take the part of your human nature that, that doubts readily, but be able to reconcile those doubts with the truth of the Bible, the truth of Jesus? You see how I can't sum that up in 40, 35 minutes, 55 minutes? It's going to be 40. Five. No. So here, here, here's just... Here's just a statement, and then I'm going to break it down. What we believe affects what we do. What we do affects what we experience, and what we experience affects who we become. The becoming is the goal of the enemy, because he doesn't want you to become more like Christ. He wants you to separate from the thing that he hates, the thing that receives worship in, in the earth, Jesus. He, he wants you to separate and not be an image of, of Jesus in the earth. And so we've got to fix the becoming, but we can't fix the becoming if we don't start all the way back at believing. Why? Because giving allegiance to something affects us. What we believe affects what we do. And let me say it this way. When you have doubts, that doesn't mean you're discounting your allegiance to Jesus. You can be, have allegiance to Jesus and still struggle with doubts. I told you last week, I, for two months I didn't pray because I was mad at God. I love God. I just was mad at him. How many didn't want to talk to your children for a while? You know what I'm saying? I love them. I just want to talk to them. No. 
And so here's what I want to look at using this, all right? I want to talk about the path to apostasy, because I think doubt, if we're not careful, can lead us down the path to apostasy. That deconstruction can lead us to apostasy. Or you can have the doubt, and how you manage it can lead you to a path of assurance. And I had to do that because I'm a preacher, and I like alliteration. So the path, everybody say path to apostasy, path to assurance. Yeah. So what is apostasy? I'm, I'm sure you know. It's the abandonment or renunciation of a religious belief, something that you've held on for years, and you're abandoning that. And so what I can see, and I'm just going to give you kind of a real-time example of these, okay? These two things, and hopefully you can kind of extrapolate where you're at in life. If not now that you're dealing with a doubt, maybe in the future, so you'll have this in your mind. But when it comes to the path to apostasy, what we believe affects what we do, what we do affects what we experience, and what we experience affects who we become. I'm going to use the same structure when I talk about the path to assurance. It's just the vision, the focus is on two different things. All right? The enemy in the garden wanted the, 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 the Adam and Eve to hear his words and to focus on his words and to have allegiance to his words. And when they did that, it began to take them to a path of apostasy. It's always that. It's always this idea of what are you focusing on? What are you drawing into? Because what we believe affects what we do. So what we believe, I'm going to cover that one first. What we believe affects what we do. And, and maybe you've seen a young person in your life that's pushing back from the faith of their youth. So they're pushing back from their allegiances. They're pushing back from their faith that they've been brought up from Scripture. They're not holding it as valid any longer. From the experience of the church, the church just isn't relevant to me anymore. And some of that we need to work on. I get that, all right? And so they begin to push back from their beliefs. When that's happening, part of those beliefs affects what we do. There's the pushing back from faith and the structures of faith. Then there's also new relationships that start to be established. That, that's part of what happens. That's part of what you do. You start to build relationships because you've pushed away from the community around, and now you're starting to build relationships that are new around different ideologies and different interests. I'm not saying as a Christian, you should sequester yourself only to believers. All right? I'm just saying that in deconstruction, there needs to be some balance. You need to hear some both sides of the voices here, and, I, and I'll get to that here in a second. I keep saying that. It all is going to come together at the end. Another thing when it comes to believing how it affects what we do, new views be, begin to be embraced and new actions begin to be lived out. These views, these beliefs, these allegiance shifts start to manifest in actions. Things that you didn't do before, now you do. Things you didn't value before, now you start to value and so on, all right? So what we believe affects what we do. Next, what we affect, do affects what we experience. So now you're in this new environment and you start to experience an echo chamber around that environment. Everybody feels this way. This is how everything is, that we're all doing. This is, this is truth because all the voices say it's truth. Yes, you're right, because you're surrounding yourself with all the voices that say it's truth. Amen? You surround yourself by all the voices that are saying, did God really say that? Can't, is scripture really real? Is that really true? Did Jesus really die? Did Jesus? So the echo chamber, that's what you start to experience. And then in that environment, practices far from being condoned by scripture start to be experienced. 
Things you never would have done before start to take place in your life. Words you never would have said, thoughts you never would have had, actions you never would have done, and so on. So what we experience, as I said, affects, or what we do affects what we experience. And here's where it's dangerous. What we experience affects who we become. Having been sifted, there's a shift in lifestyle, personality, and identity. And God made Adam and Eve in his own image. He breathed into them the breath of life. And man became a living being. Satan comes, the nature of man with doubt, and begins to say, did God really say you can have all this? Just don't eat that. No, that's not what he's saying. He's, if you were to eat that, you'll be just like him, and you'll know good and evil. And now, with a new definition of good and evil in my life, I begin to experience life differently and do things differently. And now it starts to shape who I am, and I'm becoming a different person. And I'm not the same person I always was. And my lifestyle has changed. My personality has changed. My identity has changed. Do you see how insidious the path to apostasy is? Luke 22, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He would sift you. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to use our doubt against us, not for us. He wants to use our doubt against us. Now, the thing about this, when it says that your faith may not fail, biblical faith, I know in the Bible it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It does. That's true. But I also know the scripture says that, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, all right? And so sometimes we look at that scripture, and because of that scripture, we will discount the first one. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Is the word of God concrete? Yes. It's something you can see. It's something you can hear, all right? So it's not just blind faith. It's faith rooted in something, all right? It's talking about two different faiths. There's faith over here to receive and believe for God on things that can't be seen. But this faith, when it comes to allegiance-type faith, we're talking about a faith that you can see. That, that word faith in the New Testament, it wasn't new to the Bible when they wrote it. It was very much used by the scholars and philosophers of the day. And it usually meant that it was belief in something that was backed by evidence, almost exactly the opposite of what we've been taught belief means. Almost exactly the opposite of what we've been taught faith. We just got to believe. Doesn't make sense to me. Well, it don't have to make sense, just believe it, you know. No. I want to give you a book, and it will be in the footnotes of your version notes that you can go to at mymomentumchurch.tv, okay? And in the footnotes of today's notes, it's Norman Geisler's book, 12 Points That Show Christianity is True, a Handbook on Defending the Christian Faith. They're kind of famous. Geisler came up with these 12 points that point to evidence that we can hold on to about the validity of Christianity, all right? Why? Because seeing and hearing is good. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's good. It has, it's, there's some evidence there. Now, you're, I know you're, the argument, yeah, but you have to believe the word is true. All right, I, I understand that. So you need to go study why is the word true. And I'm not going to go all through that today. The 12 points will help you, though, a lot. 
So let's go back to John the Baptist, Matthew 11, 1 through 6. We're almost done. When Jesus had finished instructing the disciples, he went on to teach and preach. John heard from prison the deeds. He sends his disciples. And he said to them, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. Everybody say hear and see. Jesus didn't scold John. Jesus didn't say you ought to just believe. No, he said, go tell him what you hear and see. That's evidence. Go tell him the evidence that you've experienced. Go give him that. And I love it too. He didn't say, of course I'm the Messiah. He didn't even make that claim. He just said, go tell them what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. Deaf hear. Dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. I love that. So what you see and hear. And many of us, because of that nature of doubt within us, when I see it, I'll believe it. I don't blame you on some of that. And when it comes to things of faith, you can see it. Here's the problem with evidence, though, all right? We are separated by 2,000 years from the physical evidence. But there are markers, historians that have written, experiences that have happened in the lives of those people that did see Jesus. And I could go through a bunch of apologetic things right now. I just don't feel like that's what I need to do. But, the, but, but basically, there is a ton of evidence for Scripture and a ton of evidence for Jesus in those early, in those early years. We're just separated by it. And that makes it difficult. So we have to study. We have to go look. We have to go hear and see these truths, these principles, all right? Then obviously there's the evidence that is experiential or anecdotal evidence. This is the evidence that comes from a relationship. And I, I'm just going to tell you right now, it is proof in the pudding. Jesus changes lives. For 2,000 years, there have been addicts being set free, marriages healed, lives that were overcome by depression becoming strong, and on and on and on and on and on. You can go through so many things that we've seen. We all have testimonies of the power of Jesus at work in people's lives. We all have those testimonies. Amen? And so, yes, there are experiential evidences as well that many of us have testimonies of. But you can see how that path to apostasy works. Let's cover this real quick, and then we're finished. The path to assurance works the same way. What we believe affects what we do. What we do affects what we experience. What we experience affects who we become. Two years ago, I had a crisis of faith in my life. I have been open about that crisis of faith. I was frustrated with Scripture. I didn't want it to mean what it means. I wish it could mean something different. It would make my life a whole lot easier. And so I had doubt. God, I want to know what your word says. Because I know what we believe affects what we do. So here's the thing. I believe God's word is true even at times I don't like what it's saying. Like, I knew that. Like, like, God, there's many times I read scripture, and I'm like, I don't like that. But I know it's true, you know. That's a belief I hold. And so in this situation where I'm dealing with this, I'm trying to hold the scripture as true, but my heart is saying, oh, I wish it wasn't. So it's a fight for my allegiance. Here's what that led me to do, though, Okay. It led me to study God's word 
but also to reading books with various views that both bolstered what I always believed and new views from authors that were hoping to shift my beliefs. And I went through about a three, four-month period of studying the Word, studying, to be quite honest, I probably did it wrong, and I wouldn't recommend you guys to do it this way. I know what the Word says. I know what I've always believed. So I took a good chunk of time, about two months, and only studied the arguments against what the Word says. Like I, I just, and literally said, if this is true, and I have interpreted Scripture wrong, I will step down from the church. If this is true, if I've, if I, I'm not going to lead momentum into a progressive movement. Amen? How many happy about that? But guys, I was in a crisis of faith two years ago. And literally, I want to know what the word says. I sat down with the person I was talking to. And I, and I, I was like, the Bible, whatever it says, that's what we do. That's what Christians do. And I'm studying right now the word to know have I interpreted it wrong? And if I have, I'm going to repent. And I'm going to step away from momentum. And I will preach this. I will push this progressive view. So pray for me as I study. Because I want to know what's pleasing to the Lord. Because that's what Christians do. We listen to the word. And so I began to study. And then I went into time where I was studying for a couple months on arguments and, and, and books and things that are bolstering my old beliefs. And guess what? By the end of that, period, man, I had allegiance to the orthodox view of what scripture teaches. And if you're curious of the situation, it's, it's on same-sex relationships, it's on the sanctity of marriage, it's on homosexuality in America today, and what is the scriptural stance for those things. And biblically, I came to that place where I believe it is a sin I don't believe it's a greater sin than any other sin. But I believe it is something that we look at and say, that's not the lifestyle I'm going to pursue. And then God, how do you help me with this, you know? But again, I was at a place where I needed to know. Why? Because what we believe affects what we do. So what I began to do is I began to study. I didn't just go listen to the echo chambers because they were all around. I had echo chambers on the right. I had echo chambers on the left. Stuck in the middle of you. Right? It's true. It was like, I mean, no, I had to study. And I did. I studied in a balanced way. Why? Because what we do next affects what we experience. What we do affects what we experience. Experiencing the echo chamber, but the volume of the echoes weren't as loud as I continued to listen to the word and authors, like the scripture, and authors and others in my life that had earned the right to speak from years of faithfulness and lives that were a witness, that experiential evidence. I've seen their lives as witnesses. As I began to embrace those things, it became evidence to me, all those things, to the fact that staying faithful to God's word bears lasting fruit. So I wasn't making myself privy to one echo chamber or the other echo chamber. I was, I was truly seeking truth. Does that make sense? Not just an opinion. Why was that important? Because what we experience affects who we become. I want to go to a path of assurance, not a path of apostasy. I became more compassionate. I became different. I did. I became more compassionate for others bound by same-sex attraction. 
Very compassionate. I became more settled that the principles I've always held were true. But that sounds like a juxtaposition that is in contrast. It is. But I learned I could love deeply and still hold a standard. I became more balanced in how I showed love while maintaining a standard. And when I say a standard, I want you to hear this term, biblical worldview. Because that's what's being challenged is a biblical worldview. All right? And I was able to learn, and I became more balanced, you know? And so when it comes to the sifting, I was going through a sifting time. But God was faithful, and I came out strong, not sifted. Amen? And in your doubt, go down that path of assurance and allow God, to, as you're being sifted, to cause you to come out strong, not sifted. Jesus, in showing how caring he was, Regarding John the Baptist's struggle with belief, he reveals to us that it's okay for us to have doubt, all right? And with the warning to Peter, Jesus reminds us that he has a plan for us, even if Satan is trying to sift you and pull you from God's best for your life. Watch this plan. Simon, Satan demands you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again. Everybody say, turn again. Is that good? When you have turned again. Like there's this, like, like Jesus speaks a faith-filled promise over him. You're going to do it. You're going to be like sifted almost. But when you turn again, you'll strengthen your brothers. You become strong and not sifted. And then what's neat is that serves to strengthen others. And what I've found is I hated that crisis of faith I went through. I hated dealing with doubt. I hated dealing with not being certain. But I do feel like I went to it with a pure heart to say, okay, God, if everything I believe is completely wrong, change me. And in the process of that, I was able to hold fast to what was truth. Amen? And two years ago, I was being sifted, but I came through the sifting, and God has actually been able to use that to help others in similar situations that they're going through with crises of faith. Why? When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Amen? So I'm glad I have a room full of people that struggle with doubt at times, and I know that God will help you in that process as you go down those paths, as you deconstruct and reconstruct, and you're guarded from the path of apostasy, and you go down a path to assurance. And guess what? Down that path of assurance, there's a lot of days you're still going to have some doubt. Yeah. But God will meet you at that place. Amen? Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you just continue to allow our hearts to be drawn to you. Lord God, to your word, that we would be those that truly have allegiance to you, and we would run after you in a relationship in such a way, God, that you're seen, that you're loved, that you're known. And Father, we do lift up our family members that need the things of you right now, Jesus. Those who are deconstructing, help them reconstruct in such a way that they rebuild, that they will turn again. And they'll strengthen others. And they'll rebuild on a rock that will not falter. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. For more information, please check out www.momentumchurch.tv.